What happens with a smart contract is the guarantee that both of those things are going to occur is automated by an application that looks for certain conditions to be met. And the way we're using smart contracts at the moment, for example, with blockchain or with the Ethereum network, is very, very simple. But what's going to happen is it's going to become very sophisticated. People are going to automate more and more of the triggers that decide whether you're even going to enter into the contract. That is Dr. Philip O'Ryan, and this is episode 11 of the Blockchain Pro podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 11 of the Blockchain Pro podcast. I'm Adriana Bellotti and today's guest is Dr. Filippo Ryan, also known as the awesome Pip Ryan. Pip is a barrister and senior lecturer at the UTS Faculty of Law, where she inspires young minds to think about the big issues and discover new technologies. Her research explores trust and distrust in digital economies and autonomous systems, including the use of smart contracts enabled by blockchain technology. Let's dive into our chat. All right, we're hurrying. Excellent, thank you. Hi, Pip. Hi, Adriana. How are you today? Very well, thank you. How are you going? I'm all right, thank you. Pretty crazy day today. Yeah. It's been for you as well as I know. So let's dive right into it, shall we? Let's do it. So tell me a little bit about how your career began. Okay, so my first um, degree I did straight out of school was a degree in English Literature at Sydney University. There's not a lot you can really do with a degree in English (laughs) Literature unless you're going to teach English Literature at a university or just read lovely books. When I finished that, I was actually, this is a very 1980 story, but I was invited on campus to a careers fair and there was a very large insurer recruiting young grads and I was offered one of three positions, either marketing, accounts, or software and systems engineering. And I knew nothing about software and systems engineering and I thought, that sounds so cool. (laughs) So I I took the job, um, accepted that position, went into this insurance company, worked as uh, just an administrator and spent two years doing lots and lots of courses and getting to know exactly how file structures worked and it was a 100% IBM environment Yes. and I absolutely fell in love with it. Uh, but then after that I thought I'd better go and find myself a job doing something in insurance and I did some insurance courses and I went to a recruitment agency and they recruited me to work as a recruiter. <laughs> <laughs> So I got a little bit sidetracked and said, oh, we've got a job for you, you're going to work here. (laughs) Um, Which I actually loved, amazing experience, did that for a couple of years, went to London, worked for ESSO there for a couple of years as part of that classic Australian pilgrimage, lived there for two years, and then on my way home, my aunt said to me, sort out what you're doing with your career, you either need to study computer sciences or law, choose. And I actually chose law and it was a good move, and the first very committed legal environment I worked in, of course, was legal technology. Ah, okay. And the litigation technology environment was an absolute joy. But one of the partners there said to me, don't work in legal technology. You won't be a fee earner and a professional person. You'll just be a member of staff. You need to do law and be work as a lawyer, not do law to be a legal technology person. Again, good advice, because back in the 1990s, which is where we're at now in this little journey, um, that was correct. That, that nobody really 
worked in legal technology and thought of themselves as a major fee earner, you were still providing litigation support to um, lawyers. What is a fee owner? The fee earner is somebody who works in either an accounting firm or a law firm who actually uh -huh. charges the clients for okay. their time. Okay. Rather than being a cost within the firm, you're an asset. Whereas now, you go, go to any major law firm or accounting firm in the world and ask what their legal technology team does and you can guarantee they're a very important part of the business model. And oh, they're absolutely. delivering services to clients and they're income earners for the firm, not a cost. Legal tech is legal huge tech business. It's huge, yeah. So that's been really great for me because I then worked in commercial litigation, got some great experience working with amazing people in law firms, worked for a judge for a few years while I finished the law degree, went to the bar, I've been a barrister now for 16 years, but I did a PhD uh, a few years ago just trying to future-proof myself in case I decided I wanted to become an academic. Mm -hmm. And by the time I finished the PhD, it became absolutely clear I wanted to be doing teaching and research not working on other people's cases, but working on things I wanted to do. And so I've been an academic for four years, and in my first year as an academic, stumbled upon Bitcoin. Oh, <laughs> that's going to be my next question. Yay, we already got there. Yeah, so we've got there. And yeah, um, once again, you know, somebody shooting me an email and saying, you should go to this seminar. This is the sort of thing you love. You love all that legal technology stuff. You should go and have a look at this. And it was a seminar about blockchain. Yeah. And that's, that happened in 2015. Oh, uh, was that in Sydney? It, it was in Sydney. So this was the Koala team, you know, the Coalition of oh. Automated Legal um, Applications. The blockchain workshops. The blockchain workshops. Yeah, which I was at that too, yeah. Yes. At the end of 2015. So I was involved with the workshop, so I did a whole lot of work on some smart contracts apps with Vlad Zamfir from Ethereum, mm -hmm. and Primavera um, de Filippi was there, and Constance Choi, Animal Sexton, and they really ran the whole show. They had Lawrence Lessig was zoomed in on the final day of the conference to talk to us all about what's happening in, um, in theory. And um, Georgie Ito from the Media Lab at MIT was zoomed in as well from his offices in Cambridge in Massachusetts. Everybody was a bit zoned out at that conference. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it was, it was quite overwhelming. I felt like I had thrown myself into some crazy world where everybody spoke a language I didn't understand. I was having conversations with people and having to tell them just to explain to me where, which part of contract as I understand it are you talking about when you want to automate a smart contract? So should we talk, tell a little bit about what a smart contract is? Um, I'd say some of our audience is fairly, fairly new to all of that. So as a young lawyer, how should they be thinking about smart contracts? Um, so smart contracts, if you really want to do some reading and you want to know exactly what you need to be reading up on or looking at on YouTube, you should go, if you're a lawyer, to the work done by Scott Farrell and Claire Warren at King and Wood Mallisons. So if you just Google their names, Scott Farrell, Claire Warren, King and Wood Mallisons, up it'll come. Read those documents about DNA smart contracts. The way a lawyer needs to think about it is, at the moment, we all do transactions online. Most transactions are really just remittances. The proof of one side of a contract is provided either physically or via email or on a website or you get a little confirmation that something's happened and then you remit money. So even if the website you're using, let's say it's eBay, says, do you really want to purchase this lamp? 
and you say yes, and they say, okay, well, in order to ask the person to send the lamp to you, you need to send some money. They're just remittances, and then the person who's sending you something is just sending it through the post or with DHL. Mm -hmm. What happens with a smart contract is the guarantee that both of those things are going to occur is automated by an application that looks for certain conditions to be met. And the way we're using smart contracts at the moment, for example, with blockchain or with the Ethereum network, they're very, very simple. But what's going to happen is it's going to become very sophisticated. People are going to automate more and more of the triggers that decide whether you're even going to enter into the contract. Humans are going to hand over more and more of that to machines. And the great thing about blockchain, blockchain technology can provide within that whole environment some very clever automated mechanisms for proving that certain things have happened. So you don't just trust it's happened, blockchain technology can prove it. So smart contracts are just the automation of the transaction part. Okay. All of the agreements that have to be made and all the discussion that humans have when they enter into arrangements will still be done by humans. And all of that discussion and, and exchange of emails or chatting on the phone or a video conference, humans will still do all of that. But the actual mechanism of the transaction and proving both parties have done what they said they're going to do is going to be automated. And how about when there's a problem? The, the mediation of that problem, the, the, the resolution was still going to be done by humans. Yeah, and I think, I think um, so 99% of the time, the mediation of a problem is resolved by humans. Well, 99% of the time, the contract follows on its happy little path and everything's okay. But my experience as a lawyer and as a barrister and speaking to the very clever people who set up contracts so as a barrister i do a lot of litigation and what i see is not the marriage between these parties in the honeymoon period i see the divorce when they want to kill each other but actually my experience has been as a litigator the better the work is done up front the more everybody talks up front about how you want to resolve any problems the less likely you are to have any and indeed, you can anticipate the types of problems and you can come up with ways of resolving them that you pre-decide. See, it's a bit like a prenuptial for a, a marriage. You could say, well, if we divorce, let's agree X, but let's do it before we even get married. And in those cases, it's going to be a lot smoother most of the time. And so the way you would mediate it is very much, if you look at the way eBay's model works, it says, well, we've got an automated mediation system, but of course it assumes... These are disputes over a very small amount of money. And so you then bring into the quotient, well, how much time is it worth my while fighting about this? And you're willing to resolve the problem by most of the time splitting the difference or agreeing to the breach. Now, when we talk about smart contracts, we don't talk about leaving the human out of the loop when there's a dispute. We talk about humans automating how they think all of the different potential problems could be mediated upfront. So you're actually making the whole thing smoother, including when it goes wrong. Now there are going to be things that go wrong like catastrophes. Catastrophes will always occur. Catastrophes for me, things like electricity fails, your computer system fails, you ran out of whatever you thought you had. There will, those will always occur and that's where good insurance policies will cover all the parties. So in my view, I wouldn't, I wouldn't use a smart contract to buy a house mm -hmm. if that's all the money I've got in the world. I wouldn't put all my risk there. I think smart contracts are great for repetitive, continuing payments for ongoing relationships where the parties might never meet, 
but you can trust that the system will manage the arrangement. So you could do a smart contract, for example, when you're buying a new car to handle the maintenance agreement. Exactly. And I was talking to a very, very clever lawyer, Stuart McCauley, who back in the 1960s, he's now in his late 80s, he wrote some amazing research work on the social contracting humans do. How do humans enter into contracts with each other? How do they establish trust? And this is all before the internet. And he wrote some incredible research about how that works. And I sent him an article I'd written which took all of his research and overlaid it onto the blockchain and said, what does it look like now? What does all the Stuart McCauley's research look like when we talk about smart contracts? So I sent it off to him for comment and he said, there are maintenance contracts that are the perfect um, candidate for this. And his example wasn't cars, although your example is fantastic. He suggested aeroplane maintenance contracts. So airlines, Boeing, Airbus, they build and they design these air, air um, aeroplanes, they're sent off to the airlines, and then the airlines have service agreements they mm -hmm. enter into. Those are really ripe for smart contracts. So is things like um, the generation of solar energy to be shared between community mm -hmm. communities who want to buy and sell um, excess and solar. There from has each been other. some, some, some examples, examples, examples of that. Yeah, yeah, that's the work Gemma Green's doing with Power Ledger over in WA in Perth. And it's a great example because you could say to the community, look, you all live in the same geographical area. You're physically close to each other. There's 200 houses or 200 sets of um, apartments in these series of buildings. Let's all put solar on the roof. Let's get electricity that's cheaper than we could get from the usual service provider. But we need to manage this electronically so that we can have a system that tells us on our mobile phones via an app how much electricity we've got, do we have excess, do we want to sell it, how much for, who are the buyers, and then see the financial transactions happening and have that all managed with a system that we can trust so that it's a bit of a set and forget, which is what everyone's after. Everyone wants to set and forget. Easy to use, good for the environment. Exactly. New yeah. technology. And the good thing about set and forget is that the fewer humans involved in the loop, the cheaper it is to run it. Oh, yeah and then the service becomes cheaper. And humans shouldn't be doing those sorts of repetitive checking tasks. The cost of auditing and managing risk is incredibly high, usually because so many humans are involved. So if you can automate the management of risk, what you're really doing is automating trust. And trust versus trustlessness, it's something that's huge yes. in this space. It is. Right. Um, would you have an example where there's trustlessness in the system and why that is what brings trust in the end? Yeah, so trustlessness is actually about trustworthiness. It's about the complete trustworthiness of a party. If I say to you, Adriana, I'm happy, even though I've never met you, let's say you live in Caracas, I live in Canberra, we both want to enter into an ongoing um, arrangement on a monthly basis where you're going to be the service provider for website updates and manage all of the social blogging for my business and I don't want to have to do any of it. I just want you to manage content. You're going to be my media monitor and then I'll pay you on a monthly basis. You and I could set that up and we could automate a lot of the processes that we're going to undertake. And if the system, if the computer, if the technology is going to manage things like checking the number of updates that you have done, checking that it's current, checking that you went to the correct sources and validated it so that it's accurate, so I can trust that content, and you checking that the money's gonna come through into your bank account for the service you've provided, the trustworthiness 
and the complete trustworthiness is achieved and becomes known as trustlessness. And the trustlessness doesn't mean there's no trust, it means the trust is absolute and there's no risk. The risklessness is trustlessness. So trustless is, is a very strange word because it, to me, when I first heard it, because I've, got a, because I've got a PhD that actually classifies different types of breach of trust, <laughs> for, me, for me it doesn't make sense to use that word. I think trustworthiness. Um, but, but I think when you use the word trustworthy, there's degrees of trustworthiness, whereas this, this word trustless suddenly says, and it's complete, it's perfect trustworthiness. And that's why it's so popular. It is very popular and it's going to become more popular. Yes. Because it does have that meaning, and I accept that. I'm not going to fight it. I, I use it all the time, even though to explain it, I have to go to the word trustworthy and riskless to, to complete the definition of trustless. And uh, can we put a link to your PhD thesis that talks about all these different oh, things? that's a good idea. I actually don't have it published anywhere on a website, but yeah, why don't I give it to you and you can load it up on the website and then we've got a link. Yeah. What do you think of that? Absolutely. You can put it on my website or, yeah. or yours. No, 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 let's put it on yours. That's a great idea. Yeah, um, awesome. Yeah, I'm happy to share it. Um, and anybody's welcome to use it just with proper attribution, of Absolutely. course. <laughs> and I've also got another really cool thing that I might give you that you probably would like to share as well, which is a very good analysis of the automation of certain types of smart contracts using the same levels of autonomy that have been accepted by the International Standards Organization for autonomous vehicles. Okay. Yeah, so if you think about driving around in your car, if you're on the zero level of autonomy, that means your car doesn't drive itself. It might tell you to switch on your windscreen wipers or it might automatically switch on the windscreen wipers when it starts to rain or it might beep if you're a bit too close to another car. It might slow down if you're on cruise control and too close to the vehicle in front. So that's a very low level of autonomy and you've got a lot of control over whether that's on or off. Level five autonomy is the highest level and that's when there is no human in the car and it decides where to go and when and when to stop. And it's probably not advisable at this time for a level five vehicle to drive anywhere <laughs> in the world. But we're getting close to level three and four on things like university campuses or on the tarmac of some airports, they're starting to drive these kinds of vehicles. And there are obviously trains around the world that are driverless. So you can go to the Docklands Railway in London and there's no drivers in those vehicles, but they're on rails mm -hmm. and they're pretty much remote controlled. They're not using sensors. Mm -hmm. So what I've done is had a look at the way that the International Standards Organization ranks the human level of control on all these different types of vehicles and where they should and shouldn't drive and I've done the same for smart contracts ah. with blockchain. And I've said there are certain types of contracting that are really suited to autonomy and to being released into the system without human control. Uh, and then there are certain types. And you know, even if you look at the Bitcoin blockchain, there are humans at either end of all of those contracts. Yep. So they have a, you know, the Ethereum network's using smart contracts, but they're probably only level two or three for when you look at your level of autonomy. There's humans still deciding when to run those contracts. But we are going to move to more towards more and more autonomy. And the question has to be, if you're a lawyer, which kinds of, which kinds of contracts that we enter into are suited to auto autonomy. And that's the analysis I've done. So I'll send it to you. And I welcome comments. Oh, that sounds very interesting. I want to read it too. I'm not a lawyer. Probably, I'll probably get half of it. But oh, no, most <laughs> people would understand it. Yeah, no, it's the kind of contracting we all do day to day. Okay. You, would know, you would know if you enter into a contract with someone to buy a house. 
But that's very different to entering into a contract to download music from iTunes. Oh, yes, yes. And, and most humans are very good at understanding contracting, and that's what Stuart Macaulay's research was about. It's about the fact that it's a social relationship as much as a legal one, and that we do, we do contract with each other socially every day without thinking about the legals, and most smart contracting will operate the same way. You won't need your lawyer to make a smart contract do everything you need. It's just that it might be useful to have a lawyer to tell you when not to use a smart contract. Good point. Um, okay, so what were some of the cool things that happened to you after you came about blockchain? So I think I know that your career has changed a little bit in regards to that. Mm. How did that come about? Uh, so I think a couple of things that were very cool were, first of all, because I understood it so little, I started researching and writing about it. And I think that's been the first cool thing has been Becoming somebody who doesn't just think about myself as a university researcher who should write books or write journal articles that are peer-reviewed, but I now also write for The Conversation, I do interviews like this with you, and this is, this is the really cool stuff where you get to say, I'm not going to wait until somebody has decided whether or not what I've done is researched to a level that it's suitable for a peer-reviewed journal. I'm going to back myself and open myself up to the criticism of the world. And all those people out there in Twitter land who like to say, well, Dr. Ryan got it wrong, or Dr. Pip doesn't know what she's talking about. Decentralize the feedback. Exactly. Decentralize the feedback. Create, create new content and put it onto LinkedIn and ask everyone for their comments and share it with the world. I think it's become something that even really conservative academics like me would say now is the way that we should be having these conversations. We should welcome comments from everyone. And yeah, there's the odd nutbag out there who wants to say that they know more than you and tell you you're an idiot. I don't mind so much. I've learned to be quite resilient. So getting on the radio and having a regular show with James Valentine on the ABC on Tuesdays, you know, the first Tuesday of each month we get on and we talk about how technology is changing humanity and where does that leave us? And <laughs> these things are very, very cool. I think the other thing that it's done is it's forced me as a person who teaches very, very smart law students to have to come up with new ways to explain difficult concepts. And I think forcing myself to think about the world and how we all live and how we socialize and then reimagine it with these new amazing technologies has been really fantastic. Uh, the other really big part of my life now is the work I do with the International Standards Organization. And the standards work is very special because it's the only forum I know, as an academic, as, an, as a barrister, I can tell you with my hand on my heart, it's the only forum I know where incredibly clever experts come together and they don't shoot each other down, we collaborate. We're all working together to try and find the best way to set standards, to think about best practice, and not to interfere with the wonderful magic that happens when people are creative and making mistakes. And I think standards is just about the only work I know where that happens, where that magic occurs. And how far away are we from having standards? So it's been really important for standards to develop in conjunction with innovation, mm -hmm. particularly if you're talking about something that is going to so utterly change the way that we all do business and socialise. You know, this is a whole new economic model when you talk about blockchain. So we've been on the journey from the get-go. We started with the discussion about standards way back in 2016. In the world of blockchain and thinking about regulation, that's very early. It's not early when you think about Bitcoin, but it is early for regulation and standard setting. So standards are different to regulation, mm -hmm. but what standards do is comfort the regulator. So there's a lot of regulators doing the standards work with us. We started in the beginning of 2017 in earnest with starting to produce documents. 
and we hope to have a technical specification for smart contracts by the middle of 2020. And it'll be a document that we will say to the world is a work in progress, just as blockchain is a work in progress. Now, I'm also working with standards on artificial intelligence and risk management, and it's the same there. We're all just trying to come up with ways to say to the international community, it would be much better if we all work together, if everything we do can interoperate. Doesn't mean we've all got to share the same source code or the same approaches, but it lets at least say to each other, wouldn't it be good if the data or the records or the ledgers on a blockchain network could be uploaded, let's say, into an Excel spreadsheet using a CSV file, so that every time we all want to physically look at something and defend it in court, we're using the same systems. So it doesn't mean it's all going to look exactly the same and work the same way. We're just talking about interoperability. And we're also talking about making sure no one corners the market and excludes everyone else. I mean, it would be a real pity if only 10% of the world could have access to the internet instead of where we are now, which is something like 80% or 70 or 80%. If there were no standards for the internet, that probably would have happened. That's exactly right. And, you know, the way the internet proliferated standards eventually developed and we all we don't necessarily use the best packet switching technologies but we're all using the same ones so and we can works. and your email can reach an email of someone in caracas exactly and all they need is the internet and it's the same with gps all the satellite systems that we're using that deliver gps it would be a real shame if somebody had said oh we're not going to actually allow anyone else to use our gps system because without geo positioning how do we know where we are how do our phones know where we are Yes, we don't. I think we, we have so much to talk about, but I think we have to go upstairs for the yeah. other event. Yeah, we've got a 10th anniversary for Bitcoin today. Happy Halloween and happy Satoshi Day, everyone. Yes, happy <laughs> Satoshi Day. I'm wearing my Satoshi is my hero t-shirt. It's a wonderful t-shirt. I'm a little jealous. I've designed it myself. But I, I, it's beautiful. I'll, I'll have to buy one from you. I'm going to. And I'll send you some Bitcoins for it then, Adriana. And I have a gift for you. I have a Bitcoin downstairs. It's a gold chocolate Bitcoin for you. Oh, yum. <laughs> awesome. So, Thank you so much for today. Thank you for having me. And I'm pretty sure you're going to have a part two sometime. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm looking forward to sending you those documents and sharing them on the website. And I welcome everyone's comments. Thank you. Thanks, Adriana. Thanks, babe. Cheers. Cheers. And that was the lovely Pip Ryan. I love listening to her stories. One thing I enjoy about doing this podcast is learning new facts about people's careers and life choices and how they got started and what motivated them to follow a certain path. It's really interesting. And it was a shame that our interview had to be cut short due to our time constraints. Uh, so watch out for part two early next year when we will discuss the standards work in a little more detail and also talk about Pip's book Blockchain Transforming Your Business in Our World which uh, was launched a little bit earlier this year. We are approaching the end of season one with only two more episodes to go this year and while I work on this be good and huddle if you can. Also write a review if you enjoyed this episode share it with someone uh, the objective here is to inspire others to work in crypto uh, thank you so much for listening and i will see you at the next block bye